This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 156. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you. So, let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 14 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Will Karenson is an idealistic college student with dreams of making the world a better place. An aspiring novelist with a strong social conscience, Will hopes to write a great novel about the people of Metamore's street level. He hopes that telling the story of the street rats will change the hearts and minds of the people higher up and lead them to make the kinds of reforms the city needs. Will knows, however, that he doesn't have the knowledge or experience to tell the street rat's story on his own. He's reached out to his girlfriend for help, the runner Callie Linder. Against her better judgment, Callie put Will in touch with her old mentor, Silas Kenning. Silas has retired from the runner's life, and he now operates a security consulting business. Callie took Will to Silas's home and office, which is outfitted like a well-armed fortress. Silas lectured Will on the importance of helping people in a real, tangible way, not because it will make a better book, but just because of basic human empathy. Besides, Will doesn't have the right to tell their story if he's not a part of it. Taking Silas's advice, Will and Callie went to a local community kitchen, where they spent an evening helping to feed hungry people from all over the street. They talked to an older woman named Lorraine, who told them how the gangs used to provide protection for their neighborhoods before the vampires co-opted them. They also learned that several of the kitchen's regular volunteers have stopped showing up, and no one can get a hold of them. Callie volunteers to make some house calls to check on people, since as a runner, Callie can cross the boundaries between neighborhoods without getting harassed by the gangs. After cleaning up from dinner, Callie and Will head out across the city, hoping to find their missing people. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 14 Callie's swoop pulled up to the last address on the list, the whine of the engine echoing off the tower walls around them. Will got off the saddle, removed his helmet, and hung it on the edge of the cargo rack for the fifth time that night. He checked the clock on his phone. It was a quarter to midnight. He looked up dubiously at the cracked and crumbling yellow masonry of the tenement building. They aren't really going to be awake at this hour, are they? he asked. Oh, they will be. Callie nodded at the doors of the building. 
a red light could be seen through the narrow window above the doorframe. Come on, there's a reason I saved this one for last. Callie strode up the steps to the doors and knocked three times, paused, knocked once, paused again, and knocked twice more. The door opened. A tall, muscle-bound breed, a half-Luton, half-human hybrid, glowered down at her. He had gray-green skin, a black leather jacket, and a red bandana on his head, and he looked like he could snap Will in half without breaking a sweat. What do you want? he grunted. Got a message for Starla, Callie said. Give it to me. I'll put it in her box. Nah, Callie said, crossing her arms. My orders were to give the message to her directly. Take me to her. The breed's frown deepened, his heavy brows extending like a hanging cliff face over deep, sunken eyes. Starla ain't here, runner. I ain't seen her in three days. Where'd she go? The breed shrugged. Didn't ask. Callie closed her eyes for a moment, taking what looked to Will like a calming breath. He couldn't blame her. Will wasn't any kind of fighter, and the guard was easily twice Will's size, but even he wanted to strangle the guy. All right, Callie said. Is Lum available? I want to talk to her before I go. I'll check, the guard said, and closed the door in her face. Callie settled back in a relaxed but ready posture, her eyes scanning casually up and down the street. Do you think he's really checking? Will asked. If he leaves me standing out here, his boss is going to hear about it. Callie said darkly. You don't screw with the runners if you want to stay in business down here. Will looked up at the building again. And what business is that exactly? Callie smirked. If you gotta ask, you're too young for it, Tiger. Will glared at her. I'm twenty-one. And yet, Callie said. Thudding footsteps echoed behind the door, and then the guard reappeared. He opened the door wide and gestured to Callie. Lum's free. She'll see you. Thanks. Callie strode past the breed and started up a long wooden staircase that rose from the entry hall. Will hurried to follow, but he was stopped by the guard's meaty hand in the middle of his chest. Who are you? The guard grunted. Let him go, Callie snapped. He's with me. The breed leaned in and took a deep sniff next to Will's neck. He grunted. Smells like a topsider to me. Is he a paying customer? He's my assistant, Callie said, exasperated. Come on, big guy, you're wasting my time. The guard looked at Will for a moment longer, then dropped his hand and shrugged. Don't go getting any ideas up there, softy, he said. You want any trade? The boss had better see some shine first. He rubbed his fingers together in the universal symbol for money. Will swallowed hard. Got it. He hurried up the stairs after Callie. The upstairs was dark, with only a few red lamps to see by. Will took the stairs two at a time until he was at Callie's side. She was wearing what Will thought of as her professional face, her jaw set, her eyes hard her bearing erect and proud. The second floor was laid out like a cheap hotel, with numbered doors at regular intervals along both sides of the hall. 
The walls must have been thin, because Will could hear all kinds of animalistic sounds coming from behind them. Grunting, moaning, the occasional shriek or a cry of, Oh, gods! He was grateful for the red lighting, because he was sure his face was crimson all by itself. No, Will did not need to be told what kind of business this was. They passed a few open doorways, and Will couldn't resist looking inside. They looked like the worst hotel or dorm room Will had ever seen. Stained and fraying carpets, paint peeling on the walls, queen-sized bed, a nightstand, a little wooden table, and a couple of rickety-looking chairs. The beds did not have blankets or comforters on them, just plain white sheets. The bathrooms were in the hallway, one after every two or three bedrooms. Will chose not to look too closely inside them. Callie stopped at the third open door they came to, down at the end of the hall next to another staircase going up. She knocked on the doorframe. Lum, it's Callie. Come on in, a female voice called. My boyfriend Will is with me, Callie said. We're coming in now. She beckoned to Will, and they both stepped inside. Callie shut the door behind them and locked it. A pubescent girl, maybe twelve or thirteen, was stripping the sheets off of the bed. She wore a pair of cheap plastic food service gloves and had a spray bottle and rag resting on the nightstand. She had a sweet-looking face, with big blue eyes, fair skin, and thick, glossy black hair that fell to her shoulders in a mass of ringlets. She wore a thin silver necklace with an odd little pendant on it, a strange conglomeration of metal, bone, and stone, and had a pair of copper bangles on her wrists. What shocked Will, though, was the rest of her outfit. The girl was dressed in an emerald green lace teddy, which plunged down in a V between her little breasts. In back, it was held on by nothing more than a few thin straps and a G-string. She was in her bare feet at the moment, but Will saw a pair of matching green heels in the corner of the room. She looked over her shoulder and smiled at Callie. Hey, kiddo, what's new? Her eyes flickered over to Will. Besides your sexy new boy toy, I mean. Will stared. Oh, Eli, he whispered, horrified. No, no, this can't be, I, I can't. He started backing toward the door. Will! Callie grabbed his shoulder and shook him. Will, it's okay. She's an AR. AR? It took him a few seconds to parse the initials. Age regressed. You're cursed? Lum smiled ironically and bowed. The few, the proud, the pedomorphs. Luminera Kalini, at your service. Will Karenson, Will managed, and bowed in return. He couldn't stop staring at the girl. I'm sorry, I've just never seen a pedomorph before. It's not a life most people would choose, Lum admitted. If I'd been able to get a suppression amulet in time when I arrived here, you can bet I'd be wearing a different body right now. She turned back to Callie. So what's up, hon? I'm trying to find Starla, Callie said. She missed her last couple of shifts at the kitchen. They're worried about her. Lum's face immediately grew serious. She hasn't been showing up for her shifts here, either. I tried calling her, but no luck. 
Callie sighed and ran her fingers through her tangled poof of hair. Shit. She crossed to one of the chairs and sat down, her arms on her knees. I've just spent half the night running around town looking for missing people, Lum. Everywhere I go, I'm hearing the same story. Somebody's gone, nobody's seen anything, nobody's heard anything. Lum came over and sat down on the edge of the bed next to her. It's the street, she said. People do move around. But she didn't sound any more convinced by that than Will was. This is different, Callie said. Losing this many people this fast? Something's going down. Lum was silent for a moment. Then she let out a heavy sigh. You're more right than you know, she said quietly. Callie perked up. You know something? Lum looked warily over at Will. Is he steady? He won't spill, Callie said. What's going on? Lum looked down, tapped her fingers together. There were some new workers supposed to come in yesterday. Refugees out of fuck knows where. Madame Petra had a meeting with us a few days ago. Worked out a whole schedule for how we were supposed to train them. Only they never got here. What happened to them? Will asked. Lum looked up at him with a flash of irritation, as if she resented him intruding on the conversation. Nobody knows. The ship made it to port, they say. The truck made it to the city. After that? She shook her head. Nobody's seen Petra, her bodyguards, or any of the new workers they brought with them. Callie looked absorbed in thought. Has anyone reported the skimmer missing? No, Lum said. They use that van to move us around for house calls and shit. If the cops get their hands on it, they'll pull our DNA off the interior. Then we're all fucked. Will's heart sank a little further. Not just a brothel, then. An illegal brothel. Which wasn't that surprising, actually, since the last he'd heard, pedomorphs weren't allowed to work at licensed parlors. There were arguments to be made on both sides of that debate. Discussions of the topic had gotten pretty heated in some of Will's sociology classes. In the end, though, the Centralist Guild just didn't want the bad press associated with catering to the tastes of pedophiles. And since banning something never actually eliminated the demand for it, that meant the black market had stepped in to accommodate those desires. That still sounds like the best place to start looking, Callie said. A van's a lot harder to disappear than a person. Lum looked at her curiously. Who's paying you for this run, kiddo? Nobody, Callie admitted. But if somebody's snatching people off the street, I want to find out who it is before they go after me and mine. The girl nodded thoughtfully. Yeah, okay. Just keep us off the police blotter, all right? Cert, Callie said. The two women rose, and Callie hugged Lum holding her tightly and kissing the side of her neck. You be careful, sweetie. Lum drew back and pecked Callie on the lips. You too. I'll let you know if I hear anything else. Thanks. Callie headed for the door, waving for Will to join her. They left the brothel without talking to anyone else, though the guard glowered at them from his chair by the door. So what do we do now? Will asked, once they were outside. Now I'm taking you home, Callie said. She grabbed her helmet and started putting it on. This is some bad business. I think you'd better keep your distance until I understand what's going on. 
No. They both stopped. Callie raised her eyebrows at Will, waiting. Will crossed his arms. Ever since this started, all I keep hearing from you is how topsiders don't give a damn about what happens to street rats. Well, I'm here. I care. And I'm not going to run away when we've just found an even bigger story than the one I knew about. He stuck out his chin defiantly. So give me something to do. Give me someone to interview, or a question to research, or have me look at freaking security camera footage. But do not tell me to go home and do nothing. Callie stared at him for a long moment, her mismatched eyes locked on his blue-gray ones. Then something new came over her expression. Something like respect. Okay, Tiger. You're on the team. She reached for his hand and squeezed it, then closed the distance between them and kissed him on the lips. But you're still going home to sleep. If we're going to crack this, I need your brain firing on all thrusters. Will smiled, relieved. All right. When do we meet up again? I've got to help a friend with her ride in the morning. After that, we'll head back over to Silas's place. If that van got dumped or scrapped somewhere, there's a good chance he'll have a record of it. Sounds great. Will put on his helmet, and together they climbed onto the skimmer. So, does Silas know everything that happens down here, or what? Not everything, Callie said. Just most things. Glad he's on our side. I don't know that he's on anybody's side, Callie said. He's just trying to keep the street from falling any deeper in the shitter than it already is. Will shrugged. Well, that's close enough for me. Me too, Callie said. It was after three in the morning, and Silas Kenning was awake. That in itself wasn't unusual. The older he got, the less Silas was able to sleep. He often found himself restless in the early hours, awakened by his bladder or another bout of phantom limb pain in his missing leg. When he rose to visit the loo, or walk off the pain, he often ended up reading a book for an hour or two, instead of going immediately back to sleep. Sometimes he would wander out to the kitchen area, make himself a cup of herbal tea, and then settle down in front of his control center. He would check the security cameras, both on his own building and on the surrounding blocks, until his paranoid instincts had been assuaged and his mind could rest again. These late-night voyeur sessions never revealed any real threats. A lone hunter, perhaps, or a group of gang members passing through, but nothing that could threaten his defenses. When a danger did arise, it was usually from his own systems. A broken ventilation fan, or a coolant line that had sprung a leak. That could cause one of the server banks to overheat, leading to automatic shutdown to prevent a fire. Those were the sorts of problems Silas didn't mind because they were tangible, immediate, and solvable. By the time he had attended to them, he could usually fall easily back to sleep. Tonight's problem appeared at first to be of this sort, a loss of power in Bank 57. That was a matter of some concern, because several of the building's defensive measures were managed through that bank, including the proximity alarms on the outer perimeter. It was only a vulnerability in his security systems, not a complete failure of them, but it still would need to be fixed as quickly as possible. Silas grabbed his toolkit and headed down to the server floor below. 
Silas opened Bank 57 and pulled out a rack of server blades to get at the cooling systems behind it. After twenty minutes of careful prodding and testing, both the fans and the liquid coolant seemed to be in fine condition. Silas slid the server rack back into place, flipped the manual switches for restart, and watched the status lights. None of them came on. Muttering a string of curses, Silas removed the server rack again, then pulled out a few more components to get at the lower guts of the machine. He opened up the power supply unit and took a close look at the connections. Everything was intact except for one small wire, which appeared to have been chewed in half by some kind of rodent. Silas didn't recognize offhand what the wire was for, so he went back upstairs, dug through his filing cabinets, and pulled out the design specs for the server bank. The search took more than ten minutes, and it was another fifteen before Silas found the right section of the specs to make sense of what he was seeing. The wire, it seemed, was connected to a sensor that monitored the flow of current in the municipal power supply. Silas had battery backups and standby generators ready at all times, and if there was any harmful fluctuation in the power grid, not an uncommon occurrence in this part of the street, then the sensor would trigger a switch that automatically shifted the server bank to auxiliary power. With the wire cut, the sensor couldn't send the signal, and some sort of disruption in the power supply had caused the server to shut down. Damned lucky mouse, Silas thought wryly. If the rodent had chewed through any other wire in that box, it probably would have been electrocuted, but the sensor was delicate and carried only a few milliamps of current. He must have done that when Callie came by for a visit. The girl's supernatural luck was invariably good news for her, but for anyone around her, the dice could fall either way. Fortunately, the repair was easy enough. Silas went back down to the floor spliced and soldered the wire back together, then buttoned up the server bank and switched it on again. The machine hummed to life. No sooner had he finished, though, than Silas was struck by another nagging thought. If there had been a power disruption, why hadn't he heard it? The battery backups were only designed to run for ten or fifteen minutes, long enough to top off the generators with fuel and make sure they had all switched on. That sort of thing had to be done by actual human hands, so the batteries triggered a screaming alarm system that was guaranteed to wake the dead. Why hadn't it gone off? He went back to his control station and checked back through the recent status reports. Yes, there was the notification about the power loss, and the logs showed that the alarm system had been triggered. The municipal power was still out, in fact, and had been for more than two hours. The generators had all started up automatically, thank Eli, and with their current fuel supply they would last at least until morning. But none of that would have switched off the alarm. Silas had to turn it off manually. By all rights, it should be running right now. Silas clicked over a few windows to check the current status of the alarm. According to the computer system, it was going off. What in the fourth hell? Silas muttered. He grabbed his toolkit and went over to the nearest alarm unit. It was mounted in a bright red housing and equipped with a strobe that could flash in several different colors, depending on the nature of the emergency. Red for fire, blue for power loss, yellow for a security breach. 
It took two special screwdriver heads and several minutes to remove the unit from the wall and inspect it. The wires inside had been chewed through. A slow horror crept up from Silas's gut and into his throat. He looked around at the other alarm units. There were five in different parts of his building, and none of them were going off. It was just possible that a second lucky mouse could have chewed through one unit's wires at the same time as the power supply in Bank 57, especially with Callie around. But to lose all five at the same time? Silas didn't believe in luck that bad. Which meant this wasn't bad luck at all. Silas strode back over to his control station as quickly as he trusted his balance on the cybernetic leg. He had a custom panic button wired into the system, a large red push button next to the keyboard. He slammed his palm down on it, activating his defensive systems. Motors hummed and metal groaned as heavy security doors came down all throughout the building, blocking access to his living quarters and the server room. Then he called up the video feeds from the security cameras, looking for threats. The loss of Bank 57 had blinded his outermost defenses, but the cameras inside the building were still working. The gas chamber at the front entrance was empty, but the hidden staircase had been forced open, and something large and blocky appeared to have been wedged into the machinery to keep it that way. Flipping over to the cams in the emergency stairwell, Silas saw a team of a dozen men dressed all in black, with full face shields and large automatic weapons. They moved like professionals, stalking up the staircase so quietly that the microphones on the security system couldn't hear them at all. Silas clicked a few buttons in the security system window, and halothane gas began to flood the staircase. One of the men shouted something Silas couldn't understand, and they immediately started charging up the stairs, all attempts at stealth abandoned. The gas did not seem to be stopping them. They must have had some kind of breathing apparatus inside their face masks. Silas pushed back the fear and forced himself to think rationally. He knew he had only a few minutes. The men would be at the door to his quarters soon, and if they were able to force the hidden staircase— a steel security door wouldn't stop them for long. He checked the hidden cameras for his other exits. At each one, men with guns were waiting. Someone was going to extraordinary lengths to get to him. A strange sort of calm came over Silas then, as he realized there was no way out. Whoever they were, these men wanted Silas, and they would get him. But they can't get everything he thought. Silas entered the command for system lockdown. A window popped up asking him to re-enter the command to confirm. He did so. Immediately, the screens of the control station went blank. In the server room below him, a loud hissing of pistons filled the room, and altogether the server banks sank into the floor, vanishing out of sight. They would continue to sink, driven only by their own enormous weight, until they settled into their individual concrete bunkers, twenty meters underground. As each one slid into place, it would engage a pressure pad connected to a set of levers, and a cap made of lead and spell-hardened steel would lock into place on top of it.
a set of protective wards put in place ten years ago by a friendly wizard, would ensure that no one could access the hidden servers unless they knew the counterspell that would release them. Silas sat back in his chair and let out a long sigh. He'd done all he could for the street and its future. It would be up to others to carry on what he had started. After a moment, the pounding started on his security door. Calmly, Silas walked to his gun safe. Win or lose, he would not be going without a fight. And that's the end of Chapter 14. Come back next time for Chapter 15, when Kate joins Morgan, John, and Ava for her birthday dinner, and makes a few connections between some important clues. At the time you hear this episode, I'm going to be in Michigan visiting my family. I'm recording this ahead of time, so I don't have a weekly writing report for you. Come back next time, and I'll tell you how things have been going. In the meantime, if you're a patron of my Patreon campaign, you should go check out our latest piece of bonus art. Ben Clifford turned around his latest commission in record time, so now you can see John and Kate running into Lyle at the dive bar in Chapter 8. I really like this piece, and you can only see it if you go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a pledge today. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.